This week's episode of Pop Culture Double Date. Uh, this week we are taking a little break from the movies, um, and we're going to talk about The Witcher. I mean, The Witcher on Netflix. It stars Henry Cavill as Geralt of Rivia. Um, it's been out for a little while now, but it's taken us a little bit of time to all um, finish watching this and find the time to get to, the, to talk about it. Um, yeah, so we're going to talk about The Witch tonight. I'm joined tonight by uh, Gerald, Anager, and Maggie, my usual crew. Say hello, everyone. Hello. Hello, everyone. And um, yeah, let's let, let's get started. So, as a little bit of background, I might um, I might give our audience a little bit of background about what The Witcher actually is first, right? So. Um, just as a little warning, this is going to be a full spoilers podcast, so we're going to talk about details of the plot. Um, yeah, so if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening now and tune in again after you finish watching The Witcher. Otherwise, we're going to start talking about it. Um, so yeah, The Witcher is like a fantasy series. Um, it's it's on Netflix. I think it's eight episodes. Is it eight episodes? I think it's eight episodes. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's about, I mean, the Witcher, the main character who is played by Henry Cavill is a guy called Geralt of Rivia. He's like a, basically a professional monster hunter, right? Like he's, he's like a mutant. He's kind of a little bit of an outcast in the sense that to become monster hunters in this world, you're apparently sort of given special sort of like drugs and that sort of thing to turn you into a bit of a mutant that's capable of hunting monsters. Um, and this is a world of high fantasy, right? So monsters and dragons and all this type of stuff openly exist in this world. So um, the premise is basically Geralt goes around hunting monsters, right? But, I mean, really in this series, there's three sort of interweaving stories that go throughout this series. There's the story of Geralt and his adventures kind of hunting monsters, but more than that, it's his... Geralt's story is really about him, I guess, sort of acquiescing to his destiny, I guess. So various events happen throughout the this series, um, and they kind of push Geralt into um, a role that he is initially quite reluctant to take up, right? Um, there's a story of Yennefer of Vengerberg, who is a sorceress, so obviously in this world of high fantasy, magic exists as well. And Yennefer of Vengerberg is, uh, we first meet her when she's a girl, and she's a sort of a hunchback, and we she's she possesses incredible magical talent, and she gets sent to this magical school, and we basically see her see her growth as a character, right? And see how she evolves from quite an innocent individual to someone who is quite ruthless and self-serving to someone who is, um, I guess, trying to seek something more in life as well, right? And so that's her journey. And then the last sort of main character is Ciri, who is Cirilla, who is the princess of a country called Sintra. And... Um, in the first episode of The Witcher, her um, grandmother, who is the queen of Sintra, I want to say, she um, basically, their realm gets invaded by these guys called Nilfgaard, uh, or another realm called Nilfgaard, 
and um, she has to go on the run because for whatever reason one of the uh, well Nilfgaard wants to take her prisoner and she goes on the run and her story is basically about her going on the run and eventually meeting up with Geralt because the way these three stories are bound together is that the show implies that these three characters are bound by some sort of greater purpose or destiny right so I think that's like an overview of the show um, and I think we'll get into more detail um, as we talk about it so why don't we start by just going around the table as usual talking about well did we like the show um, would we recommend it? Um, yeah, and what your impressions of the show were. So, who would like to shoot first? I can Matt? start. Yeah. 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 Um, so, I came at the show with zero background about it. I started to see ads for it on Netflix. And to be really honest, I was quite sceptical at the beginning because... Watching the trailers, it, the impression I got was that it was some kind of fantasy horror movie with monsters and magic, and I wasn't really interested in that because I'm not really interested in horror. Um, Darren convinced me to watch the first episode with him, and it felt like a sort of standard kind of set-up episode, you know, vaguely interesting but not particularly exciting. But after watching about two episodes in, I was fully into it I couldn't stop watching it and I was gripped so there's definitely some formula they've got going in um, this series that's really working for someone like me anyway Um, the main things that I really liked um, I really enjoyed the structure so I've spoken to a few people about The Witcher most of them found the time skips in the plot quite confusing and that was the main reason why they couldn't really get into it Max, let's mm. just step back for a bit. So just for the audience, basically, the structure, this is pretty key to this entire series, right? The whole time structure thing that you're talking mm. about. Yeah, mm. so um, it's actually probably one of the big reveals in the series when you kind of realize that the three stories, Geralt's story, Yennefer's story, and Ciri's story, even though they're happening on the screen concurrently, they're actually not happening at the same time in the story of this universe, essentially, right? So what you kind of figure out is Yennefer's story happens over, like, you know, probably almost a century, essentially, right? Because she mm. becomes an immortal sorceress. And she, her story starts before even the story of Geralt, right? And yeah. Ciri's story is very short because she's like a 16-year-old or something like that. Um, and it's basically like the present, right? Like, well, whatever that means, right? But Ciri's <laughs> story is sort of based in the present. And Geralt's story is kind of somewhere in the middle because, yeah, because he also has an extended lifespan because he's a mutant monster hunter. So he's like functionally immortal, I guess. I guess it's never confirmed. So this is like one of the core reveals, I think, of the show. And for me, definitely, it was something that kept me gripped. But Max, keep going. Sorry, I, I thought I'd, it might be useful to explain that in a little well, bit Well, absolutely, detail. absolutely. Um, so that for me actually made it really interesting trying to work that out. Exactly what you were saying. When were you know when were things actually happening, and whose experience started before another person's experience? And you know, the bard. I was watching that bard really closely. He's um, one of Gerald's. Um, Gerald, not Gerald. Gerald? <laughs> You're talking to Gerald. <laughs> the guy on the show is Gerald. <laughs> Gerald. <laughs> uh, 
um, Geralt of Rivia. <laughs> um, he's one of um, his travel companions, and I was trying to work out, okay, based on his age, uh, where in the timeline do they sit? So I found that quite a lot of fun. Um, I also liked how each episode was a different journey and monster and place. So like little mini stories that contributed and sort of built um, to the larger story and and pushing the overall story arc along. Um, I thought it was a really good way to introduce the world and the different characters. Um, My main, I guess, the main thing that I enjoyed in that regard was understanding the politics um, in this universe. So there's lots of little different kingdoms in this universe, each of which have a mage kind of assigned to them by, I guess, a a, kind of like a a mage's council um, based in Eratusa. And one of the scenes that I particularly enjoyed was um, sort of in the middle of the series, um, a gathering of the mages at this council to debate whether or not to take down the evil kingdom of Nilfgaard, which we can talk about later. So I really hope they develop that a bit further in the next season. Um, finally, I really um, enjoyed the main characters. I thought it would, they were um, well cast. My favourite, um, same as you, Darren, is Yennefer. I think she's really interesting and I'm intrigued to see how she develops. Um, I like that she's very different to other female characters in that she's very impulsive and willful, clearly very talented um, and trying to work out, I suppose, her place in the world. Um, I was less interested in Siri, which is ironic given she's meant to be one of the main devices, one of the main sort of plots, um, her journey throughout um, the series. So I'm interested to see, I guess, how they make her um, move along as the series continues. That was me. Mm. Okay, so you would recommend The Witcher? You enjoyed it, right, from what I'm hearing? Yes. Yes, I would recommend it. Okay. Um... Gerald of Sydney, would you like to talk about The Witcher? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, I'd be, I'd be happy to discuss the adventures of my fantasy namesake. Um, this show comes at an interesting time in um, the, you know, ongoing evolution of peak TV. Uh, Game of Thrones obviously came to an end um, about six months ago, and when it first landed. Um, there were several comparisons between The Witcher and Game of Thrones, and I think um, audiences have now adjusted to the notion that this show isn't so much intended to fill the gap left by Game of Thrones as it is something more in the tradition of, say, uh, Xena, Warrior Princess, or Hercules with uh, Kevin Sorbo. So don't expect a great deal about the political intrigue of these various fantasy countries. In fact, one of the worst things about the show is that the the reason for the conflict between Nilfgaard and Sintra is just not explained at all, uh, beyond possibly the fact that the Queen of Sintra insulted the Prince of Nilfgaard at the feast which marked the giving away of the Princess of Sintra. Other than that, there's no real reason given for why they're at war. Um, There's no real reason for why given for why uh, Nilfgaard, which is looked down upon as as a state with very little power, is suddenly almost um, 
invincible. Um, so don't don't go to the show expecting um, some sort of fantasy analog to the Wars of the Roses. You're just not going to get that. The other thing about the show uh, is that there, there is, I think, a bit of a grand gaping hole in the form of the character of Geralt of Rivia because um, and I don't think the fault lies with Henry Cavill, who is usually... Uh, gives better performances than he does in this show. But the fact of the matter is um, his character is this monosyllabic, grunting, monotonous uh, figure with a backstory that's hinted at in the season finale but not really fleshed out. And so he just, you know, he comes across as dull, dour, uncharismatic. I mean, sure, he's easy on the eye, um, it being Henry Cavill, but I think... He is nowhere near as engaging a character as were, you know, Kevin Sorbo's Hercules or Lucy Lawless's Xena. Um, and so um, the focus, well, the focus, you know, the, the attention of the audience is then drawn to other characters like Yennefer. And I think like you, Maggie, um, Yennefer seems to be a more compelling character, um, even though... Um, uh, you know, sort of her appearances are more intermittent and some of her motivations, while sort of, while, while stated um, briefly in sort of single lines of dialogue, aren't particularly well fleshed out either. So um, the show is fun, but it's not, it's not prestige TV by any measure and it would be, an error for anyone to judge it according to the criteria of prestige TV. It's brainless entertainment. And to that extent, um, it completely, you know, uh, accomplishes the mission that it's set out to, uh, to accomplish. So all in all, um, a fun set. Um, I'd recommend it for brainless viewing on, um, when you're, when you're couch surfing one night, but, Truth be told, there is so much uh, content out there. Um, you know, sort of Netflix just dropped the second season, for instance, of Sex Education yesterday. That, um, you know, would I would I say drop ed- drop everything to watch the show? Probably not. But if you can get around to it, it's perfectly fine. Mm, interesting, interesting. Okay, uh, would you like to go in Lake Sanjo, or would you like me to? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean- we, we did kind of drop everything to watch it though. Like well, we did binge it over two days, but so I think it is. It's very. I think it is very compelling, and that's saying a lot because Gerald initially like refused to watch it because it's <laughs> fantasy. Job. No, I, I will that. say it, it, it is a terrible pilot episode. The pilot episode throws so much information at you. Uh, it is really confusing and also kind of boring. Yeah, look, um, Andrew, before you fully get into it, um, mm. can I just, like, I'll just respond to yeah, Gerald's point it. about the pilot episode. I 100% agree with that, right? I think the pilot, I, I don't fully agree with some of Gerald's points, but I fully agree with the idea that the pilot episode didn't, did a massive disservice to this. So I watched that pilot episode and I was ready to drop it, right? I've, I was like, this is, that pilot episode makes it feel like Hercules' Legendary Adventures, right? Like, I mean, look, I loved Hercules' Legendary Adventures, but, you know, like, it's... it's Hercules' Legendary Adventures is not particularly cerebral, right? Neither is Xena Warrior Princess. And that pilot episode, it feels 
like the way it's filmed feels really vapid, right? It feels really hollow, um, especially since you get introduced to like all these characters in Sintra, and like the characters in Sintra, like they feel like sort of cardboard cutouts in that first episode. You have no kind of sense of the background of like the queen or like the you know the sort of the surrogate grandfather character, right? Like. They're kind of these, just these drop-in sort of fantasy kingdom characters. Um, yeah, so I, I felt like, I felt like in, basically, I feel like that first episode, they did that because they wanted to make the big reveal of the time skips, right? They didn't want to make the time skips really apparent. And, like, I, I think that was a mistake, right? I, I feel like if any television, like, if in traditional TV, if that had been the pilot, like it, it, it's like by far the weakest episode of the entire series, and um, yeah, like all I would say is that if people watch that pilot and feel like dropping it, maybe give it another episode or so before you drop it, because uh, I do feel like there's more meat on the bones after that first episode. Anyway, sorry about that, Aaron John. Yeah. No, it's fine. It's, fine. it's not. A, I don't think it's a terrible pilot. Most pilots are not. The best episode. Like most pilots are usually the worst episode episodes of the series because um, they're just trying to introduce you to people and like, introduce you to a world. But that's it's true. It definitely gets better from episode two onwards. I really loved it. I thought it's. I just think it's a really fun show. And just yesterday, I was really missing it. You know, just that sort of light-hearted, easy entertainment. Um, sort of being dragged into a fun magical world um, with dragons and magic schools and you know, light political intrigue um, was fun. Uh, I think uh, Geralt is um, just great at all the action scenes. They seem very um, video game-like, the way they're shot, but because that's quite unusual, I don't, you don't normally see that kind of style in, like, an action movie. I, I found it really interesting and fun to watch. Um, so, look, it's beautiful to look at. I, I think it, I think the t- time jumps, I know Gerald found it um, quite annoying that they have the, the time jumps and didn't see the point of it, but I found it just added more interest um, and intrigue, like trying to figure out where they were in the in the timeline, and it just, it, it just, it felt nice to be able to get such a big background on all of these characters and their long, long lives, and that was fun as well. Um, and I find the mystery around, like, who or what the character of Siri is. So, so you know, Siri is kind of the MacGuffin of the show, right? Yes. So they're all kind of towards Siri, and that's why she, her character is so unsatisfactory. They haven't seen the need to develop her character yet. She's just kind of the end point because we all know that she's got super special powers. We're not entirely sure what it is, but it seems to be, you know, there's a difference between um, life and death for the, the, the world or humankind. There's a bunch of prophecies around it. Um, and so just slowly unraveling the mystery of that is fun. And I think they give you just enough to keep that moving and kind of feed our curiosity um, without feeling like we're not getting enough or we're getting too much. So I think they do that quite well. Um, so I'm curious as to whether it's going to explore certain ideas, like um, the idea of the lesser evil and being presented with two choices, one, they're, they're, and they're both 
evil choices, but one is the lesser evil. Kind of comes up a lot. And Gerald has uh, Gerald has always said, um, in that situation, you should just not choose. But I think it's you know, it, it seems like the series is starting to raise the question of you know, by not choosing, is that a choice itself? Um, and is that the wrong choice sometimes? So. It would be it would be good if it kind of in, it explored some more philosophical questions like that. Um, I I like all of the characters. Yennefer is also very interesting, and she grew up feeling very um, unlovable and very powerless, and now suddenly she has this beauty which you know attracts people to her, and she has a lot of power. Um, but and, and she seeks those things, but she's kind of learning that they're not fulfilling her though. And so she's still seeking some kind of fulfillment in this world um, and struggling with that. Um, Geralt, Geralt's character is kind of in some ways the most two-dimensional. He's all about good and evil and, and his code is, you know, live and let live. So he'll only kill certain types of monsters, which he has deemed as evil or the world has deemed as evil and he won't kill other types of monsters. Um, but it will be kind of interesting to know, you know, what happened to him. How did he get made a witcher? What processes did that involve? Like, I'm interested enough in this world and who he is to, like, want to get to the bottom of all of that, which is kind of awesome. So, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Would obviously definitely recommend it. Mm. Okay, cool. So, look, I, I think out of the four of us, I probably have more background about, had more background about the witcher going into the series than the other three of you. Um, mainly, well, so, look, I... I I haven't read the book. So The Witcher is actually based on a series of novels by a Polish author. Um, and I can't really pronounce his name, so I'm not even going to try. But um, yeah, so there are a series of novels. So like, I guess I feel like people made the comparisons to Game of Thrones because there was that sort of novel material uh, available as well. So... Um, to I guess to the point of whether some of this this political stuff will be explained, whether you know the power of Nilfgaard will be explained, um, I feel very confident that it will be explained because I kind of know what happens there. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, I'm I'm pretty confident that that will be explained, and I think in this first season of The Witcher, like they make. Illusion. So the way they've kind of portrayed the political situation is that it's rarely front and center, right? And this is kind of like something that I actually really enjoy about this series, because this series is very different from Game of Thrones, because Game of Thrones is played on this strategic map, right? Like, when you watch Game of Thrones, I mean, the opening credits is like... It's like this strategy map where there's various cities and places of power and people are scheming in these various areas of power and you see how they're sort of moving their pieces around and that sort of thing, right? And The Witcher is not actually like that. The Witcher is like a much more low, sort of um, intimate sort of view of this fantasy world, right? Where it focuses on individual characters and their journeys. And the political landscape is just background, right? It's kind of like, oh, like, you know, right now we're going through this kingdom of Tamaria, and we have King Foltest, and he, you know, slept with his sister, and, like, his sister's child is, like, this crazy, like, Striga monster, and Geralt has to deal with that, right? But all of that is kind of, like, background. But then, 
what I like about this series is that because it's really it's set over such an expansive years, every time you kind of check in with these characters at this very intimate level, you kind of see how that background has kind of evolved. And the show explicitly, well, it, it tries to not explicitly tell you exactly what's going on. So you're kind of, it's kind of what I like about it. You're kind of forced to fill in some of the pieces. So in the case of Nilfgaard, like, you know, when you first hear about Nilfgaard, which is when Yennefer is like in sort of Hogwarts, essentially, Aratusa, whatever it is. Yeah. Like when she's like learning to be a wizard, um, like you hear that Nilfgaard is like a really weak country and the king of Nilfgaard is just, you know, just likes sort of sleeping around with women and is sort of corrupt and that sort of thing, right? And then somewhere along the line, you hear about a character called the Usurper and, you know, you hear about, oh, like, you know, we're going to put like um, Fringilla, who was like one of the wizards there to be his advisor and blah, blah, blah. So you kind of like figure out, well, okay, there was this original king and then there was a guy called the Usurper. And then you time skip to the present. And at some point in the past, basically a guy who calls himself the emperor has come in and basically instilled like a authoritarian government in Nilfgaard. And they've turned from this backwater into this sort of, authoritarian regime that is like driven by like religious fervor almost like because all of the soldiers of the Nilf of Nilfgaard talk about the white flame and the Nilfgaard that you see in the present with Siri they're all about like self-sacrifice right like the wizards that they have in their army basically sacrifice themselves in order to power their mage work, right? Like, the wizards kill each other to get the power out of each other in order to, like, do their magic. So, like, you kind of, like, so you don't know exactly how this stuff has happened, but it's kind of like, well, at these various points in time, this was the political background. And you're kind of, the intrigue is kind of like, well, there are these big blank spaces. So how did this kind of happen? And the show purposefully kind of doesn't show it to you unless it's absolutely necessary for them to show it to you, which um, I like. So so to the point about how it feels like Hercules and Xena, I get that because it's very intimate, right? It's like individual, like it's more about the individual journey. And to be honest, because there is an element of monster of the week about this show as well, because there is kind of like a different monster every episode kind of thing, right? Um I, I get that, that it has a feel of Hercules, but it's definitely, I don't feel like it's really as low budget as Hercules, and more than that, I feel like there is more substance than Hercules, right? I, I, I feel like this show has more substance than those, those sorts of old sort and sandal style um, TV shows. Um, yeah, so that's, so the other bit of background around this is that, um, Anager mentioned that she felt like some of the fight scenes were video gamey, and look, I mean, The Witcher's popularity, like, the background about this, The Witcher is basically, they wrote the books, He, the Polish guy wrote the books, and the books were really popular in Poland, but internationally, I think, it, they weren't that well known, and then a Polish video game company, like CD Projekt Red, they made a series of video games based on The Witcher, not based on the stories from the book, but uh, they're like kind of direct sequels of the book. 
And those video games exploded, like internationally exploded, right? And look, I'm, I play games, so I've played The Witcher 2 and I've played The Witcher 3. Um, and yeah, like I think because of those games, they've become much more like well-known and like I think also the imagery of it has become more sort of ingrained, right? In a sort of a wider, not necessarily a mainstream audience, but a wider sort of audience. So definitely... Like, I saw in this show certain nods to the video game. Like, yeah, like, I think some of the fight scenes were kind of... They had some of that sort of video game style fighting. But, um, yeah, like, definitely for me... Like, you know, Anija, you were talking about this idea of the lesser evil. I'm not entirely mm-hmm. sure if that is a theme of the books. I, I think it must be, right? But absolutely in the video game, it's a huge central theme, right? Like, because with right. video games, you absolutely have the ability to choose, right? So in this video game, yeah. pretty much everything you do are like shit choices, right? Like, do you kill this person or do you, uh-huh. like, in order, do you kill this innocent to save all these people or do you save this innocent and you live with the consequences, right? And so they're really hard. Yeah, look, a lot of them, are, like the central quest, the central quests in like The Witcher Two and The Witcher Three are filled with these sort of heartbreaking choice style. Um, well, yeah, yeah, it's like I mean, and that's kind of what's made the game so popular because they, right. yeah, and actually, I definitely see in the series they employ a little bit of that, right? So, um, there's there's a tiny little line that in my mind is like a really sort of it feels video gamey, like watching the like. So, right at the in the last episode of this series, basically the Nilfgaardian army attacks the Brotherhood of Sorcerers. Well, like um, a bunch of sorcerers decides that they have to make a stand against this religious zealotry of Nilfgaard. Right. So they hole up in this fort and they fight the Nilfgaardian army. Right. They try to prevent the Nilfgaardian army from crossing. Now. Um, in that scene, there is a little bit where um, one of the characters is called Triss Marigold, right? So you meet Triss Marigold in the TV series in, I think, episode three, I think, when... With the Striga. With the Striga. Triss Marigold is, was, at the time, the advisor to King Foltest of Temeria, um, and Triss Marigold hires Geralt to help the king's daughter, turn the king's daughter back from a monster into a human, right? And then later in episode eight, she says to Yennefer, oh, um, like Yennefer asks her, do you really think that Foltest is going to come and help us? And Triss is like, yeah, absolutely, because, you know, Geralt saved his daughter. And for me, that was like, yeah, that feels like a huge video game style moment because the video game is full of these things where, you know, at the beginning of your quest, you make all these choices to save people or kill people or whatever it is. And then in the final battle, like, it always has an impact on the final battle. So if you save this guy, then the king comes and helps you in the final battle or whatever it is, right? So I was like, yeah, like, I felt like that was like, hey, video game fans, Look at this! It's kind of happening in the series as well, <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Like, look, I I thought I really I enjoyed this series, right? And I actually feel like this series is written by people who um, love the video games and um, prob- probably love the novels as well, right? Like, I feel like there's a lot of care put into um, this world, right? Because 
Um, mm. This world is like the world that they've created. I feel like is not the video game world because they like I can understand why they didn't want to copy the video game world beat for beat, but it is similar to it in many ways and has like lots of sort of visual and design um, sort of callbacks to it essentially, right? So you know, like um, look, I, I think. One of the, for me, one of the things that I noticed was that um, Henry Cavill's Geralt, th- throughout all the different time periods, every time you see him, he's wearing a different set of armor, right? And mm. I was like, yeah, like visually, that's actually the video game because the video game, throughout his journey, he's constantly changing his armor. Like, I mean, from in video game terms, you're upgrading your armor or whatever it is, right? But he's constantly doing that, right? So seeing that sort of happening in the series is feels like it's like someone who understands the core of those video games and those books is like, yeah, let's let's put that visual cue in as like something to differentiate the different time periods and something to just a little something to throw to the fans, right? So I definitely feel like there was passion in this project. And I feel like it's a series that actually is somewhat cerebral. Like, I I don't think it's a 100% throwaway series, right? And this is why I don't 100% agree with this idea that it's on the same level as Hercules and Xena. Because when I watch certain episodes, they're like... Look, it's not high art, but there's definitely more thought that's got into the structure of some of these episodes than just Monster of the Week, let's kill it and move on, right? So, um, a couple of examples of that is, like, so, you know, throughout, like, okay, so one of my favorite episodes is the Striga episode. I've talked about this already. So, this is the episode when Geralt comes in and saves the king's daughter, right? The king's daughter has turned has been cursed to be this monster and Geralt has to come in and save her, right? And, like, in the battle scene, in the final scene when Geralt basically saves the daughter, like, um, there's this whole sort of juxtaposition with Yennefer, right? Because what's happening, that episode is kind of, goes hand in hand with Yennefer's graduation from from Hogwarts, right? And so, like, You basically have, on one hand, a story in which there's someone who has no choice, right? The princess had no choice in being turned into a Striga, and she is reborn throughout that scene from a Striga into a human. It's like a lifting of a curse, right? She's unwilling, and her curse is being lifted. And then on the other hand, you have Yennefer, who is absolutely willing to basically be reborn, but in some ways, what you kind of realize is that what she is actually doing is that she's almost putting a curse on herself, right? So even though there's, like, elements of mirroring with the rebirth, they're antithetical in that, like, they're kind of antithetical in kind of the core of what they actually are, right? And I'm thinking to myself that, yeah, look, it may be... Like, so whoever wrote this is not an idiot, right? Whoever wrote this is not, like, writing a Michael Bay Transformers film, right? They're, they're thinking about this stuff, right? It might not 100% land, but I appreciate the fact that they think about it. <laughs> do you, do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and, like, I, I think it also happens in... There's the episode with the dragon, when Yennefer and Geralt go to, like... Um, they go on this dragon hunt, 
right? I, I really enjoyed that episode as well. Love that episode. Probably my favourite. Yeah, it's great episode. Um, yeah, and that episode is basically about legacy, right? Because Yennefer is sort of trying to figure out how to secure her legacy and, like, this idea of how the next generation is a form of legacy. And that theme kind of gets replicated in both Geralt, Yennefer, Geralt's story, Yennefer's story, and, like, the dragon story, I guess? Because, you know, what you find out is that when you go to the top, the dragon is kind of protecting her egg, and like, there's another dragon there that kind of tries to sort of secure the egg because of how precious that legacy is for his species, essentially, right? So it's kind of like, yes, these are sort of high fantasy stories that are sort of, sort of like, people sort of slashing each other and all, and magic flying around and all this type of stuff. But there is, I feel like, a core of... Um, there is a core there, uh, like a them thematic core there, which kind of elevates it above above, like, really, sort of, really low-brow-style TV. Um, I, I don't know if you guys agree with that or, that or not, but um, I, I, I kind of felt that. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but... No, you're totally right. That's what makes it so fun, and that's why you can binge it, um, and still it's interesting. Like, it's not just trash TV. Like, I think it's interesting, and it wouldn't be interesting unless it was intellectually capturing us at some level. Like, it might not be high art, but it's mm. got enough there that, um, you know, it is capturing our, our intellect as well as, you know, our, our enjoyment of sensationalism or, you know, things that look beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, and I guess the the last thing that I kind of want to say is that like I I actually really enjoyed the character of Yennefer of Vengerberg, and um, I know we just recently watched Star Wars, right? I mean, on this podcast we can't help but reference other stuff that we've watched, but um, yeah, we just recently watched Star Wars, and one of my complaints about Star Wars is that Rey as a character doesn't really have a lot of character development, right? And for me, Yennefer is a heroine that is written in the right sort of way because she's human right and she has flaws but at the same time like by the last episode she's shown to be heroic she's shown to be striving towards something better so like i actually really like like even though there are times when the character of y yennefer is infuriating um because there are times when it feels like she wants to have her cake and eat it too right because she's kind of like she complains about having sacrificing her ability to give children in order to have magic, but then at the same time she was the one who said that she's like she wants absolute power, right? So it's like, well, you know, which one do you? But the fact is that like the way they present her feels realistic, right? The way they present her doesn't make her feel like a cardboard sort of cutout character, and I, I love that, right? I love the fact that she starts off as a character who is. Um, innately, I think when she starts off, she's innately good, right? Like, she is pretty innocent, and the first episode when you meet her, and she goes to magic school, um, like, the first lesson that they have is this thing where, um, like, the teacher is basically teaching them that magic requires some sort of sacrifice, right? You can't do magic without basically taking the force from something else, like a life force or whatever it is from something else. And she can't, she's the only one in the class who can't levitate her rock because she's scared of, she doesn't want to kill the flowers, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is like, uh, I think is like, 
you know, it's it shows kind of like where her starting point is, and but throughout the course of her experiences at this school, she becomes more and more ruthless because she realizes that in order to survive in this world, in order to like get where she wants to be, right? In order to get hers, essentially, she has to demonstrate a degree of ruthlessness. And you see sort of gradually how she kind of buries that innocence and she buries that sort of, um, I guess, that um, desire for real human connection with other people in order to advance her personal, um, in order to basically sort of transcend that initial place of powerlessness that she started from, right? It feels organic and it feels um, it feels earned, right? Uh, uh, and that, that's kind of why I like her character. It's like, yeah, like, I, I, I mean, she can be infuriating, but I like it because it feels organic and it feels earned. Um, and I wish there were more characters kind of like that um, in cinema and in TV now, because even if we compare it to Game of Thrones, I feel like some of the characters in Game of Thrones in season eight, the way their characters just kind of got to that endpoint did not feel earned, like feel, felt less earned than the character of Yennefer in season one of The Witcher. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if you guys agree with that or not either, but yeah. yeah. No, I think that was really well said. I totally yeah. agree. Really good point. To say it kind of says at the very so at the very beginning of the show where they're practicing their magic and one of the um, tasks they're given is to read each other's minds and try to discern their partner's deepest fears. Um, to say it says to Yennefer that her deepest fear is really obvious and that's basically that no one will ever love her. Like no matter what she looks like, um, like no one will ever love her. And so I think what what happens to Yennefer is that she kind of does believe that no one will love her. And when she's betrayed by her initial love interest, um, whose name is, what's, uh, is it, is it, oh, what's the name of the... I, I can't remember that guy's name. He's the archaeologist. He's the... Eastred. Eastred. So his name's Eastred, right? So when he, when she's betrayed by Eastred, um, who's a mage at one of the boy, boy wizard schools, um, I think that just further sort of reaffirms to her that she'll never be loved and so if she can't be loved she's going to go after power um and you know eternal power but then she realizes but that's not i don't think that's actually what she wants i think she wants to be loved and so even though she goes on to keep gathering more and more power it is unfulfilling um and i think she wants to have a child not so much necessarily for legacy because Jennifer has the gift to be alive forever she has the gift of immortality so you don't really need legacy if you're immortal, although that's debatable. Um, but I think she thinks a child would allow her to love and be loved in the way that she's always craved. So I think that kind of complexity of, you know, belief that I'll never be loved, go after power, it's unfulfilling, so you come back to what you've always wanted. I think that gives her a complexity that it might not be that much complexity, but it's more complexity than you usually see in characters on TV. So yeah, yeah, one hundred percent agree. Yeah, I, I I think there are some gaps in the in in Yennefer's arc. Um, there is, for instance, a massive time jump between her transformation and the scene in which um, she's attacked um, along with the the princess of the kingdom to which she's been assigned. 
Um, and we know from something she says in the carriage that she is totally disillusioned with the acquisition and exercise of power. And this is meant to blend in with, bleed into the uh, desire to have children in order to, 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 to have love. Um, but that time jump is so massive. The, the disillusionment is just not developed at all. And then in the second half of the season, she's given something of a redemption arc because um, in the middle of the season, she wants children, she wants love, but she's very uh, self-directed. And in the final two episodes, you know, she returns to Eratusa. She, you know, aligns herself with her with her um, former tormentors and teachers, and uh, and then seeks about um, goes about trying to uh, defeat the forces of Nilfgaard. Now, why exactly she would f- she would shoot for redemption in those circumstances and have that turn towards being altruistic? Not entirely clear. I know some people might say it's the encounter with the um, it's the encounter with the dragon and the notion of legacy that might have implanted in her mind the notion that you know she can't just live for herself; she has to live for something greater. But I don't think that was sufficiently developed. So I think there are actually I think there are there are hints at an arc, hints at an arc, and some complexity in Yennefer. But I think because the show is doing so much within the context of a relatively compressed season of television there are big there are big gaps such that certain certain turns in her character are less convincing than they otherwise would be mm-hmm. look jerry what i will agree with you is that i do feel like Geralt is more two-dimensional <laughs> than <laughs> pretty much he but you know for me i feel like Geralt is um <laughs> There's, like, a certain, like, hilarity about how <laughs> two-dimensional he is. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. he it's just... Adorable. Yeah, he kind of just... Yeah, he's charming in a kind of... I found him utterly charmless. <laughs> I just Aww. thought any actor could, could spend nine, eight or nine episodes of a TV show just grunting. I mean, fine, but... Uh, and he's the main he's the main character of the show. I just thought I just thought he, there was this gaping vacuum at the heart of the show, uh, which ultimately I think wisely the, the showrunners decided to fill with focusing on on Yennefer, on Yennefer. But because um, both Geralt of Rivia and Cirilla are complete ciphers in the show. I mean, Cirilla. Well, I mean, she she barely exists as a character. Um, she, she, she's. Uh, I think Anna described her as a MacGuffin, and that's completely right. She is. She, she displays no more depth than the glow in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. I mean, she is that much of a MacGuffin, um, and uh, and and so I, I just found those two characters somewhat frustrating. I didn't particularly enjoy spending time with them. Um, certainly not compared to Yennefer. And as I say, while there are gaps in Yennefer's arc at least there's an attempt to try and flesh her out in a, in a, in a t- and give her a personality that's far more interesting than than Geralt's so I just thought um, why hire uh, a movie star with the movie star looks of Henry Cavill if you're just gonna get him to be this sort of monosyllabic grunter it, I just thought that was a that was a bit of a waste of Henry Cavill I mean I'm not saying that he's not he's not the world's greatest actor but he's certainly a better actor and a better cr- screen presence than um, 
the activities that he's that have been assigned to him in the script of the show. So I, my understanding is that Cavill is actually a fan of the games, right? I think Cavill. Yeah, I think that Cavill said that he's played The Witcher Three: The Wild Hunt, and. I feel like it's definitely reflecting the way he portrays the character because in the games, the character of Geralt is a bit of a doesn't say a lot, grunts, and kind of like is stoic, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, that's really his character. He's 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 like he's like this sort of he's like a sort of pest controller almost, right? And he's kind of like, ugh, I've got to go to work, sort of thing, right? But he's kind of you know, he's like a hot like monster like monster pest controller guy right who you know doesn't love what he does but feels like he's sort of duty bound to do it and yeah so i look i I agree he probably could have had more range in the way he played him but i feel like he was definitely shooting for a similar character to kind of what he's portrayed in the um games and in the games the character of Geralt is this guy who has a huge like a gravelly voice doesn't say a lot and is um, grumpy a lot of the yeah. time <laughs> it, it almost sounds as if Cavill was trying to put on Christian Bale's Batman voice during the course of the entire show yeah. I, thought was, I, I thought it was a slightly silly performance uh, probably, probably a waste of him yeah but look I, I'll tell you okay what I did like I, I agree that it's not Super, super deep, but I, I do find his character funny, right? There are these moments when he kind of, like, he's kind of like fighting a monster or like something happens that is just not really good for him, and he just drops the f bomb, and all he does is he drops the f bomb. He just says it, and he kind of like looks downcast, right? And I, I actually think those moments are actually played quite well comedically. Like I, I, I think that they land, but maybe it's not for everyone. No, no. In that in that regard, is quite similar to Han Solo or Indiana Jones because the the, the in both in both of those franchises, the, the the main character gives off this sense of actually not wanting to be doing what he's doing right now, but he yeah. kind of just has to. Yeah. And so, to an extent, that's that's quite that, that is that is that is quite funny to see this sort of reluctant hero charging into battle when he would much rather be sort of sitting in a pub dropping. Um, Dropping a giant, um, a giant ale. But I mean, that's again, that's sort of kind of been done, kind of been done before. And you can understand why the showrunners, for instance, gave him the bard to bounce off, just to, just to leaven the sort of monosyllabic gruntiness with a bit of comic relief. I'm not entirely sure that's successful because, like, the bard is a bit annoying. I know he's meant to be, but I think he's probably. I think the performance is just a bit more annoying than the showrunners would have been shooting for. That's so really catchy. I've forgotten it now, but for a while it was in my head. Yeah, coin like throw a coin to your Witcher, right? Yes. Yeah. That was song yeah. wormed in my oh, head as my well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Throw a coin to your Witcher or Valley of Plenty. Yeah. yeah. That was I was I was I Mags will attest. I was sitting in bed, I was like Oh, I'll YouTube this song, and I listened to it non-stop for like ten minutes. Like, please, Darren, stop it. Give me a break, please. Can yeah. I say something about Siri? Um, I think everybody agrees, like, that her character's not developed, but I guess 
on the on behalf of the show and the character development of Siri, I think what we are slowly seeing is that Siri's morality or where she falls on the side of good or evil is starting to there's, there's a question mark around it. Like you would expect her to definitely be good, but then over her journey, um, and I don't mean her the character development journey but her actual physical journey to different places in this universe she you start to see her make choices which are potentially questionable and the question we realize they're questionable because of, of how other characters react to them so there's a point where um a baddie kind of captures siri and her um elf friend and um siri and her elf friend turn um the tables on this guy and siri says to the elf friend kill him and the elf friend goes, what? Like, like that's like almost like that's a terrible thing to suggest. Um, and then Siri just grabs the knife and tries to kill him herself. So there's like this question forming over how good or evil she is in this world and that she, she may be good, but that, that she could potentially be evil. And of course, interestingly, she has been promised to Geralt through uh, the lore of um, surprise. So he will be her guardian, and he's obviously a symbol for good. Meanwhile, this prince of, um, uh, is it Nilfgaard? Um, is looking for her, and he is obviously evil, um, and she obviously has power. So it's as though she could be a weapon for good or evil, and then how will her character actually develop, um, and which side will she fall on? So maybe... Maybe there's a hint of development or something there for her, but maybe maybe not. Yeah, well, definitely, like, watch this space on the Nilfgaard stuff, because I do know what happens with that. So, ah. yeah, there's definitely stuff that happens with her and um, those guys. But, yeah, like, um, yeah, I, I, I think... I'm, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that Siri will have some sort of character in the... In the in the next season, yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, I, I agree. Like, I think the way this first season was done, like, I probably was like when I watched these episodes, whenever it was the series stuff going on, I was actually just not very interested because, like, what was happening was not really that exciting. It was just them continuously running away or living in a forest, right? It wasn't like the Geralt's. Like, I mean, at the very least, with the Geralt storyline. There were the monsters, right? And you had to, like, you had to, you watched how he figured out how he could defeat the monster. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's almost an element of procedural criminal, or X-Files, right? Like, procedural criminal drama link that's, like, associated with monsters. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. yeah. So there's that sort of interest. And when the Eanifer story, obviously it's her character, right? But, but with the, the series story, actually not a lot happens it's just i'm running away and i'm just constantly running away so yeah i I get i get the concern about the the character of siri but we'll see we'll see what happens in the next season we'll see what happens in the next season um yeah although the next season will be interesting what i find interesting will be that this season i feel like a lot of the interest for me was actually driven by this revelation of the time skip right like that these things are happening in different times. And if you actually re-watch the first episode, the first episode specifically already tells you that things are not happening at the same time. Yes. Yeah, I picked that. I picked that. 
Yeah, I didn't catch it until really late the first time. I've actually watched it three times, believe it or not. The third time I watched it with Gerald, and that's when I realised, oh, it's it, they, they lay the groundwork for that very early. But I think Gerald caught it from the very beginning. Yeah. So. I, I didn't yeah. catch it until the second episode, but... Yeah, yeah. but go, go. In the first episode, there's a reference in the Geralt storyline to um, the rise of the, the princess of Sintra, who is... Who is the the grandmother of Cirilla? Correct. So yeah, yeah. That's what tipped off to the to the fact that these were stories running in different timelines. Yeah. So the first time you watch it, you actually don't know who these characters are, right? Because these names get dropped so quickly, and all this stuff is happening. So if you don't pay attention, you absolutely have no idea that Renfri in episode one, she specifically says Princess Calanthe has just won her first battle of whatever it was, right? And, like, only later on do you go, oh, Calanthe is the grandma. Oh, and they talk about how when she was young and her husband died, she fought this huge battle to secure her kingdom, right? Which is why, like, I say that that first episode, in some ways, really does it a disservice, because that first episode, Calanthe feels like a really generic fantasy queen. Like, there's nothing interesting about her, right? But then... Like, as you kind of delve into it, you kind of realize, look, and it, this is not 100% well done. This, I'm not saying that they did this perfectly, right? But I think what they were trying to get at was Calanthe is this character who started off as this, like, barbarian almost, right? And she's persecuting elves, right? Like, she fought mm. this huge battle and she, like, decimated the elf population and took their land. And she's not like a... She's not like a all good ruler she's not like a perfect queen right like she does like horrible things so you, you just like in that first episode you kind of think oh Sintra are the good guys but then as you go through you're like Sintra are actually not necessarily good guys like none of these rulers have are like 100% clean it's just that you know I guess we think that Sintra were the good guys because in episode one they were presented in such a like sanitized sort of way um yeah. Um, yes. So, so you picked it up from episode one the first time you watched it, Jerry. Yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> Impressive. Impressive. Yeah. No. Uh, to be fair, I found the the episode very difficult to hear. I just thought the dialogue was very muffled, so I actually switched on subtitles. Oh, I see. Um, that's what made it easy to pick the fact that these were. These were story, stories operating in different timelines. That, that's another flaw of the of the pilot. I mean, you had a lot of information being right. thrown at you by people who were grunting or mumbling, and it was impossible <laughs> without reading the subtitles to understand what they were actually saying to each other. Yes. So, <laughs> so uh, it was with the assistance of those subtitles that I clued into the to the ultimate structure of the show, um, and. Uh, and, and but for that, it would have taken me a lot longer, I think, to have um, to have picked up on it. That makes me feel better because for me, it wasn't until the wedding where Shrek, yeah, the Shrek wedding, yeah, um... <laughs> where she marries Sonic the Hedgehog. That's right. <laughs> they actually have that Shrek moment where they're twirling around and. Yeah, and she, and she kisses true. him, and he, yeah. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, okay. 
I think I clued onto it probably two or three. I, I think two, I was like, hang on, something's weird here. I think there was something in episode three that cemented it, but... Yeah, there are hints, like, laid all the way. Yeah. But Gerald knows how terrible I am at paying attention to detail. <laughs> and what, so... <laughs> okay, well, um, is there anything else we really want to say about The Witcher? No. I'm looking forward to it. I'm really, I'm so glad there's going to be another season. I can't wait. It's going to be great. Yeah, we'll we'll see when that actually hits. But in the meantime, we've got lots of good stuff on Netflix. There's like, as Jerry said, Sex Education is back. That was a great TV series. Um, yeah, the season yeah. one was pretty good, anyway. Um, I just just I just binged through the entire second season today, and it was. Um, it was oh, you've seen good. it. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe we'll talk about it. We'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay, everyone, thanks for joining me tonight to talk about The Witcher. I think generally um, we're pretty positive about it. I think Jerry is probably a good average to good, right? And oh, I, I think it's certainly above average. Yeah. Um, it's certainly more fun, more fun than your average show, and certainly the production values are a lot um, higher than uh, Xeno or Hercules, but... Um, I think ultimately, if you were to, if there were a spectrum of fantasy storytelling, this would still be closer to um, Xena and Hercules than it is to, to Game of Thrones, say, in its first four or five seasons. Mm, okay. Um, look, I, I I would probably be uh, I, I like this probably a little bit more. I think this is um, very good. I I really enjoyed it. I've actually seen it twice now as well. I, I enjoyed it both times. So. Um, yeah, I think that there's some depth to this. I think that um, I don't think it's perfect, but I feel like whoever is directing or writing this show is trying, right? And I appreciate that. And uh, like, so yeah, I I, I like this show quite a lot. Um, Mags and Anager, would you be more with me or sort of? More? Yeah, I don't think it's useful to really compare this show, like look, like to to either Hercules, Xena, or Game of Thrones, because like. Yeah, lots of shows have a monster of the week or a villain of the week or a murder of the week kind of structure to them. Lots of shows are fantasy with political aspects and magic. Um, to me, I don't need... It doesn't help me to compare it to either. And, or, and I don't see them as comparable to either. I think it's actually quite... I think it has a lot of uniqueness to it, um, given that it's part of a genre. Um, and I, I think it's really fun. There's something about it that's fun, and it kind of makes me feel satisfied. The critics just hated it so much and thought it was going to crash and burn, and it's, like, been the most successful show on Netflix. And it just makes me think, can't people just relax and watch something and just enjoy it? <laughs> you know, just trying to pick it apart and by, by trying so hard and doing that, missing something that the show is clearly putting out that is super appealing. Mm. So I think it's great. Yeah, I agreed. Um, Mags? Yeah, I mean, I, maybe I'm not so intellectual about what I watch, but I just go on whether or not it interests me and, like, um, grips my attention, and this one definitely did, and I will definitely watch the next season. Mm. Well done. Okay, cool. Well, um, I think that's it for this week, um, and we'll be back soon. I'm not going to... I don't exactly know when, but we'll be back soon with something else. So thanks very much, everyone, for listening, and um, we'll see you guys later. Bye, everyone.